God's word to us this morning begins in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. Beginning in verse 1. And now, uh, here, here, so Mark 11, verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. And as they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? You say, The Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it back there. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of the bystanders were saying to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. And they brought the colt to Jesus and put their garments on it, and he sat upon it. And many spread their garments in the road, and others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed after were crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and he came into the temple. And after looking all around, he departed for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. And on the next day, when they had departed from Bethany, he became hungry. And seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see it, if perhaps he would find something on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he answered and said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and began to cast out those who were buying and selling in the temple, and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it into a robber's den. And the chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him. For they were afraid of him, for all the multitude was astonished at his teaching. And whenever evening came, they would go out of the city. And as they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. And being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, behold, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And Jesus answering, saying to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it shall be granted him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, Believe that you have received them, and they shall be granted you. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your transgression. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgression. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and scribes and elders came to him and began saying to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? We'll turn now to Zechariah chapter 5. And read verses 1 through 4. 
Zechariah chapter 5, verse 1. Then I lifted up my eyes again and looked, and behold, there was a flying scroll. And he said to me, What do you see? And I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. Then he said to me, This is the curse that is going forth over the face of the whole land. Surely everyone who steals will be purged away, according to the writing on one side, and everyone who swears will be purged away according to the writing on the other side. I will make it go forth, declares Yahweh of hosts, and it will enter the house of the thief and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name, and it will spend the night within that house and consume it with its timber and stones. Now please turn to the back of your bulletin. We'll read together as a congregation Psalm 84. Psalm 84, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars. O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praise, Selah. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Becca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is he who trusts in you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we do come into your presence with praise and thanksgiving. We ponder again what the Almighty can do. We recognize that you are our health and salvation. You are sovereign over all, you're sovereign over us. Though we remain responsible, yet you direct our lives and guide them, and you are the one who will bring us safely to the end. Now we come to hear from your word, and we pray that you would build us up in Christ Jesus, the living word. In his name we pray, amen. I can remember the days when, uh, early when we were in McKinney, we moved here in 1983, early when we were in McKinney, in the next, I don't know, 10 years or so, there were issues going on uh, with businesses, meaning McDonald's was supporting something Christians didn't like, so Christians put out the word to boy boycott McDonald's. I didn't do that. Now the tables are turned on us. Things are going differently now. 
Now are the things that the uh, non-Christian community doesn't like, and since we don't support them, they're going to try and do us in. Uh, Todd sent me an article about uh, Tulsa University that was written to say the NCA had no right to allow them into this tournament because they're not for the LGBTQ and so forth. And you can see that is coming. We will be restricted. We will be marginalized, put off to the edges, suppressed, oppressed. And the question is, how will we deal with it? I've been saying for years now, we are going to be persecuted, and it's rapidly coming. I thought it would be more slowly, but you can see the way things are changing in our nation. Christianity is in trouble from the left, and Christianity is in trouble from within her own self. So our evangelicals are falling aside, adopting the ways of the world with LGBTQ, and marginalizing God's word for man's judgment upon God's word. And uh, we slide blissfully along. The blissful will come to an end. So, uh, there's a little booklet I think would be helpful for you to buy and read. It costs $3.99 on Amazon. If you don't have free shipping, call me if you want it. I'll get it for you. They know me there. It's called Critical Race Theory. It's written by a woman named Diana Lesperance. It's 27 pages. Most of us could handle that. If you want to go deeper, there's another book that I've read called why Social Justice is Not Biblical Justice by Scott Allen. Ah, I can't remember how much that one is. It's more like $12.99. You have to extend yourself a little for that book. But if you want it, let me know. This will show you what lies ahead, at least in the next four years. I don't know what will happen after that. This morning, we come to uh, a passage that is so suited to Chronicles where we are that you cannot hardly believe it. Because we're dealing in Chronicles with uh, the Davidic covenant in which the covenant is made with David that God will build a house for his son that is an everlasting house with an everlasting throne with an everlasting kingdom and David's son We'll build a house for him. We come to the triumphal entry, and it is about the destruction of the house that Solomon once built. And the religious leaders are going to ask, as he, by an enacted parable, shows the house will be destroyed, the uh, religious leaders say, who gives you this authority? Well, you know, you just have to about laugh. He's the son of David. They all know that. But... That's what's going on here. And so you look at chapter 11, and of course we don't have time to look at the whole chapter. And besides, I just had you read that. Actually, we're going to look at chapters 11, 12, and 13. I hope you have some time. Chapters 11, 12, and 13 are all about one subject. The temple. 
the temple. So in chapter 11, Jesus enters riding on a donkey. My goodness. It takes you all the way back to 1 Kings chapter 1 where Solomon rode on a donkey in his inauguration. The son of David, the true Solomon is coming. And the people praise him. But of course, by the time you get to the cross, they reject him. He rides in and he overlooks, comes into Jerusalem, takes a look around, goes out. It's not recorded the same way in Matthew. Uh, they're not disparate from one another, but one gives certain details, another gives other details from their own perspective of, of uh, what they want to highlight. And right here, he comes into the temple, and he, uh, when he comes into the temple, he looks around, he leaves, and then he comes back. And then you have this bookend fig tree. Fig tree one day, fig tree the next day, and right in the middle, the temple. Then you come to chapter 13. I mean, then after you skip over a lot of material, you come to chapter 13. And Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives, and his disciples come to him, and one of them says, oh, look at all these Grand buildings and the stones, and Jesus says, I tell you, not one stone will be left on another. And so Peter and Andrew and James and John come to him sitting there on the mountain, and they ask, when will these things be? And what will be their sign? And then comes what we know as the Olivet Discourse, recorded by Mark. It doesn't have quite as many details, but it has a lot of the same details. And it is answering the question, when will these things be? In other words, in chapter 11, he, by an enacted parable, tells the people what's going to happen. It's going to be destroyed. Then he tells his disciples in chapter 13, and they ask, okay, when will this be? And then he tells them. That's what the chapter is about. So, in chapter 13, you get to the end, and he uses a fig tree. So over here in chapter 11, you got temple and fig tree. Over here in chapter 13, you have temple and fig tree. Oh my goodness. Literature is wonderful. And God knows how to write literature better than anybody. Then in the middle of all that is the question who gave you the authority to do this? But there's something else I want to point out. Because we don't have enough time, I told Mark I need two hours. And he said, well, Palm Sunday, you can get away with it on Palm Sunday. I know I can't, so. I want you to notice one other thing. I'm just first going to highlight it, and then we're going to dig in. At the end in chapter 11 of the issue of the fig tree and the temple, Jesus talks to his disciples about prayer. At the end of chapter 13, Jesus talks to his disciples about prayer. So if we just back up a little further and we step back over here into chapter 10, just moving into 11, 
We have a story that comes just after Jesus says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. And then you move into uh, the story about Bartimaeus, blind Bartimaeus, sitting on the road, and he hears Jesus walking along the road, and he cries out, Son of David, have mercy on me! And they try to silence him. In the end, Jesus comes to him. What, what do you want? I want to see. And Jesus heals him. And what does he do? He gets up and he's walking with Jesus on the road. Then you come through chapters 11, 12, 13, and you come to chapter 14. And the first two verses in chapter 14 are about what the religious leaders are going to do. But then comes this story. And it's about a woman who has a vial of perfume. We know from John that it could be sold for 300 denarii. 300 denarii is a year's worth of wages. How much do you make? That's how much this is worth. Most of us don't wear perfume like that. And she anointed his head, and they were complaining that it could have been sold and given to the poor. So over here you have blind Bartimaeus who gets his sight. And what does he do when he gets his sight? Well, I know what I would do if I got mine. I'd want to drive a car. <laughs> What's he do? He gets on the road and follows Jesus to his death. And over here on the other side of the story, what do we have? We have a woman who's wealthy. Bartimaeus isn't wealthy, he's a beggar. But the gospel goes from the poor to the rich. It encompasses all men. And what does she do? Well, as Jesus says, she anoints him for his burial. She gives up what she has for his death. And right in the middle of this is the temple in chapter 11 and the temple in chapter 13. So Jesus comes into the temple. He looks around. And he goes back out. I said it wrong. He comes and he, and he comes to a fig tree. And this fig tree, it's not the seasons for figs, as the story tells us. But he goes up to it because he's hungry and he wants fruit. And when he sees no fruit, he curses the fig tree. No one will ever eat from you again. Seems unreasonable, but it's a parable. It's a story. I mean, he really did this, but it shouldn't have had fruit. When we get to chapter 13, there's going to be a fig tree, and its leaves are out too. When you see it tender with leaves, no, the time is near. But what the story tells us in chapter 13 is the same thing we see in chapter 11. There's no fruit. And that's the story of the temple. So, over here, Jesus curses. You go into the temple, and then back the next day on the other side, Peter says, wow, look at that. Look at it. It's withered. The tree you cursed. 
Well, when Jesus is in the temple, of course, everyone here in this room, I hope, knows he cites from Jeremiah chapter 7 and Isaiah chapter 56. Isaiah chapter 56 is about the eunuch who in God's house is going to have a name better than that of sons and daughters. And in God's house, the foreigner, the stranger, the non-Jewish person who doesn't violate the Sabbath is going to come to a house of prayer. So the temple is a house of prayer for all nations. And we all know that Israel was put right in the center of the universe. That's the picture. So that this great nation with this great law and a God so close to them, no other nation knows anything like that, so that all the nations will say, what a great law this is. What a great nation it is. Look how close their God is to them. So that right here in the center of the universe, their life witness will spread to all the earth. But when you get to chapter 11, no. What you got is no and so what Jesus does, the temple complex, the Herodian temple, is huge, huge. 500 feet, excuse me, 500 yards by 325 yards. That kind of rectangle. In the middle of it is the temple. And this whole section, way out on the outside of it, is the court of the Gentiles. And in the court of the Gentiles, you know, if you live far away, you can't really lead your sacrificial lamb or goat or bull all the way miles and miles to get there. So you sell it at home, you bring the money, and then you buy in the court of the Gentiles what you need to do your sacrificial service. Now, nothing wrong with that. God's the one who said to do that back in Deuteronomy chapter 14. But Jesus stops, you know, it's huge. It's just one little area where Jesus can be. This whole vast Gentile court surrounds the whole thing. He's in one little area. And so it, it's, it's an enacted parable. It's to show something. Not many can see it, but the ones who are looking at him, watching him, you know, they're, they're, they're spies, they're religious leaders, they're watching. What's he do? He stops anyone from carrying anything. He turns over the money tables. The money tables had to be there because you had to change your money into temple money. They were there. They were legal. He stops them from selling doves. What's he doing? He is stopping in a parable, in an enacted, just a little section of the temple. This is over. This is done. Then when you come to chapter 13, the disciples say, well, when is this done? Well, I'll tell you when it's done. And he goes through the whole thing, and he tells them. Now, if you put the two together, this is really important for interpretation her hermeneutics. You see, the church has been messed up for years because we never looked at the Bible as literature till recently. We just took little sections and didn't put the whole thing together. But if you look at it all together, you know that the Olivet Discourse is not talking about the end of time. 
it's talking about A.D. 70. When will this take place? Okay, here's what's going to happen. You know, you're going you're gonna to be persecuted. You're going to be called in before kings. All that happened in the book of Acts. You're going to be mistreated. And there's going to be a tribulation that has never been before, never will be again. Automatically we think, oh, end of age. But no, 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 no. We know from the Old Testament, this is a Hebraic way of speaking to say how intense this tribulation is. It's going to be so intense, Jesus says, that if I didn't shorten it, even the elect would be destroyed. But for the sake of the elect, I'm going to shorten it. And he says, it's going to be so intense that many are going to fall away. Well, that's exactly what happened. It's warned about throughout the New Testament, the epistles. There are warnings galore. Watch out, lest you fall away. Watch out, lest a bitter root creep up among you and, and you fall away. It's everywhere in the New Testament. Is it talking about sometime way down at the end of time? No, it's talking to churches right then and there who are going to go through this intense tribulation. And many, many will fall away. And Jesus has a parable of the soils to tell us about that. He shows us what's going to happen in the parable of the soils. The word comes and, you know, falls on rocky soil and Satan snatches it right away so they can't get it and be saved. Then some falls where the soil is shallow, so it puts down roots. It drives right down, but then it hits rock, and it spurts up quickly, and then the sun shines on it and scorches it, and Jesus says, that's like those who believe for a while. And then when temptation comes, testing, the tribulation comes, they fall away. And then some put roots down and they, it germinates and sprouts up and these thorns around and starts choking it out. And that's like the word coming to people. And they get caught up in riches and pleasures and the worries of the world and the word is choked out so there's no fruit. Then finally some falls on good ground and sprouts up and brings 60 and 100 fold. Now, we haven't seen, well, I guess I did it over here. We haven't seen where it sprouts up and because of severe testing people fall. We haven't seen that in our day. We, we've grown up in ease. But over here, we're seeing it right and left. The root goes down and it germinates and it sprouts up and thorns come all around it and choke it out. Why? Because life is so good. Who needs Christ? I can have all this good stuff. We're more worried about pleasure, riches, rights, worries, and so, nothing comes to fruit. You see, all through the Gospels, there are warnings. This is coming, this is coming. Now, take your Bible and turn to Mark chapter 13. Look at verse 28. No, nope, sorry. Wrong verse, that's the parable of the fig tree. Look at verse 23. But take heed 
Behold, I have told you everything in advance. It's a warning. And then he goes on to tell what's going to happen. And all of this is going to take place in one generation. Friends, generation is used one way in the Gospels. It means the generation to whom he's talking to. This has been a fatal interpretive error. The Olivet Discourse is not for us today. There's a lesson in it for us today, but it's not for us today. We're not going to go through the same thing they went through. But uh, then notice down in verse 32, it says, But of that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the, uh, when the, when the appointed time is. And then he tells this parable, a parable we all know. It's about a guy who goes off and he leaves his household, his servants, in charge of his stuff, and he gives them each his task, and he tells the doorkeeper, be on the alert, because you don't know when I'm coming back. It might be morning, cock crow, evening. We have a song, Coming Again. It comes right from this section right here. Lest he come and find you asleep. That's the warning. Now, turn back to chapter 11. So Jesus cleanses the temple. They go out and they come back and uh, Peter sees the fig tree and points it out to Jesus. And uh, uh, verse 20 is where this happens. Look at verse 20 in chapter 11. And as they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from its roots up. And being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, behold, the fig tree which you have cursed has withered. And Jesus answered, saying to them, Have faith in God. Now, that's the key. Have faith. In other words, let's just translate it a little bit differently. Believe God. Then he goes on. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up, and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he has, believes that what he says is going to happen, it shall be for him. It will happen for him. Then notice verse 24. Therefore, I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they shall be granted to you. Now, this is in the context of this temple that's been cursed. 
like the fig tree. It's going to die from the ground. The whole thing's going to be smashed and toppled, chapter 13. All the sacrifices of the Old Testament are going to come to an end. They will never, never, never exist again. Judaism is dead. I don't mean Jews are dead. I mean Judaism is dead. No temple, no sacrifices. There is no prophecy in the Bible that there be another one built then because if there was, then Jesus as the builder of the new temple, wouldn't, that wouldn't work. Jesus is the builder of the new temple because from the tabernacle, from the garden to the tabernacle to the temple, all the way down to our times, all looking forward to not some structure, but a people temple. And that's what this whole section is about. Jesus is going to be put to death. Remember in John chapter 2, he cleanses the temple the first time. And uh, in John chapter 2, he says to them, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it. Now, he's talking about his body because he is the temple. You go up to the temple for what? It's a house of prayer. It's where you go make sacrifice and you pray to God. But now... There is no temple. Why? Because Jesus is God. He's walking around with full deity within him. He's God. And what, when you want, you come to Jesus. You come to the temple and you pray. That's what we do every Sunday. We come to the temple. Of course, Jesus is in heaven and it's a heavenly temple. He is the temple. We come and pray. So here he tells them, believe God. You say to this mountain now, this is in a context. And we've fallen into the prosperity gospel. It's infected every part of Christianity, some more deeply than others, thinking, you know, if we just believe enough, we'll get what we want. So much so that, I, don't, I forget his name, the head of the big South Korean church over there, you know, said if you ask for a bicycle and you don't get it, it's because you weren't specific enough. God didn't know exactly what you wanted. You had to tell him what color and what size and all that good stuff. You know, a bunch of nonsense because we can't read in context. If anyone says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and he believes. Believes what? Believes God. After all, Jesus just said, this is what's going to happen. He enacted it with a parable. And by the fig tree, this picture where fruit's supposed to come, he enacted and said, it's, it's going to die. So now, believe God. And so, all from 30 AD all the way to 78, what do you suppose people were praying? Well, that's the way the whole scripture works on prayer. And so, in the beginning, he says, believe God. And then when he comes down to the end, as we saw in chapter 13, he's talking about people who believe God. So you believe God, so here's what you do. Be on the alert. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus took three disciples with him, and he went a stone's throw from them, and he prayed, Father, if it's possible, Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And he came back three times with the disciples, and each time he found them sleeping. And he said to them, could you not watch and pray? Watch and pray, lest you come into what? Temptation. 
temptation. But of course, that's a word for trial. It's a word for tribulation. It's a word for temptation. And in the whole gamut of the last chapters of each gospel, what do you suppose it's talking about? It's talking about what, just what Jesus is going to say to them. This tribulation is coming, and it's, it's so severe. You better be watching and alert and ready, or you'll fall away. Well, now, mind you, that gives us theological problems, gives us theological heartburn. Because we say, and rightly so, once saved, always saved. That's a true statement, but it needs nuancing. It needs nuancing. So how many different ways are there to say it? And so many different theologians don't say it exactly the same way, don't have exactly the same idea, but the one thing Reformed Christians know, and that is if you're among the elect, once saved, always save. But the Bible uses baffling language to it because I just repeated Some will believe for a while. So what do we do? Oh, we say, well, that can't be believed. It's got to be less than believe. But that's not what the Bible says. That's us trying to explain the Bible. The Bible says they believe for a while and then they fell away. How do you explain it? So over here, we know once saved, always saved. But we can't hold that so tightly that when we get over here, we say, you know, I'm in good shape. I'm saved. I can't lose my salvation. That's not the way the Bible presents it. The Bible presents it somewhere in the middle here. So you got one hand over here, one saved, always saved, and one hand over here. You better watch out. And here we are in the middle, and we say, oh, okay. That means I better be praying to Jesus to keep me, because I can't keep myself. I know what I'm like. If anybody's going to keep me, it's going to be Jesus. And that's exactly what the prayer is. Be alert. Watch. Because if you're not ready and stuff comes, what you're going to do is you're going to prove you weren't really saved. And so we have many people who come through this church who have fallen away. Not because of persecution. Persecution is coming. The question is, what will we do in the midst of persecution? Already, already, with just this light uh, social problem that's going on, Christians are caving to the liberal side. What happens when it gets intense? What happens when it say, you can't shop at this store because you don't support LGBTQ? Then what are you going to do? Well, you've got to come to Jesus and say, you know, I know that trusting you, you will keep me. So Jesus, please keep me. Make me strong. So the whole triumphal entry is about the king coming and he comes into the temple and he finds the system wanting. In the end, he's going to be the new temple. So we read Zechariah chapter 5 because it's about the destruction of the temple. And we can go all the way back to Leviticus chapter 14. Leviticus 13 and 14 are about leprosy. 
first leprosy that starts poking out through the skin because a man's skin is his covering. Then leprosy that starts poking out through his clothes because clothes are a second covering. And then leprosy that gets into the walls of his house because his house is a third covering. And it talks about each one. And in the case of the house, you suspect there's a problem in your walls if they turn red or green or in, here, in, in Texas, black mold. And, and, and by the way, Leviticus says, when I do this to you. So you call the priest, and the priest comes down, and he says, okay, clean all the furniture, everything out of the house so it doesn't become unclean. Because if he pronounces it unclean, then everything's unclean in there. So get it all out before I make a pronouncement. He looks at the wall and says, yep, that, 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 might, be, uh, that might be leprosy. So you dig it out, you scrape it all out, and you give it seven days, and you come back. And you look again, and if the leprosy, I said it wrong, you come back, you come the first time, you look at it and say it might be leprosy, you come back in seven days and there's still leprosy, you cut it, you cut the stones and plaster out, and you put in new plaster. And when you come back again, if it's still growing there, you tear the whole house down. John chapter 2, Jesus came into the house, the beginning of his ministry. And he did the same thing. He cleansed the temple. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, at the end of his ministry, he comes back to look at the temple. No, still leprous. Then he dies. He ascends into heaven. And then according to Mark 13, there's a day when he's coming and he's come to his house a third time. Malachi talks about it. Suddenly the Lord will come to his house and he'll be a purifier and a purger. In other words, he's going to destroy it. He's going to collapse it to the ground. That's what happened in A.D. 70. Chapter 11, chapter 13. Now our time is gone, so... We can't uh, say too much more. But all the section in the middle is about Jesus having the right to do what he did. First, the issue with the baptism of John. Second, the vineyard. The vineyard. And so you notice when, when, when uh, the, the people are going before Jesus and behind him, they're crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's from the Psalm 118 at the end. Then when you come to chapter 12, and he talks about a vineyard, where a vineyard owner is let it out, and he sends servants to get the fruit, and each time the servants are, are beat up and sent home, finally a servant is killed, and then finally the owner says, I'll send my son, and his son is killed. And at the end of that, Jesus quotes from Psalm 118. The stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. So you have Psalm 118 running all the way through this. Because Jesus, they ask, by what authority? Jesus says, I'll tell you. You tell me, where did the baptism of John come? From, hell, from heaven or from men? And they say, well, if we say from heaven, they'll say, well, then why didn't you believe it? If we say from men, we're afraid of the crowds because they think he's a prophet. So they say, we can't tell you. Neither can I tell you by what authority I do this. But of course, then Jesus goes on to tell in parabolic form. 
There's this vineyard, a picture of Israel. And people are put in charge of the vineyard. And they won't give God his fruit. So what's he do? He destroys them. What is Jesus saying? I'm the son. You're going to kill me. What they don't know is he'll be raised from the dead. The second parable is still on the same subject. How do you have this kind of authority? But you have to, you have to, you have to give a little thought to it because it's about taxes. And of course, you know, it says in the end, render unto Caesar what's Caesar's and render unto God what's God. And, and that's true. So it, it is a strict statement. You know, as Americans, you got to pay your taxes, period. But more importantly, you got to pay to God what's God's. And so they bring a coin, and right on this coin, this little penny that's about the size of your thumb now, you can see, we have coins like this, you can see the head of Tiberius, and you can read the inscription that says Augustus Tiberius, son of the deified Augustus, the son of God. Huh, this is about the son, the son of the living God. And so he's saying, you know, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. But who is the son of God? Give to the son of God. He has the authority. And his image is on you, made in his image. So render unto him the things that are his. Well, we don't have time to go through them all. I wish I did. I wish we could extend this. I wish you'd give me two hours. But you're hungry. There's just one more I want to talk about. Well, maybe one more. Two. But, but at the end, Jesus, at the end of chapter 12, near the end of chapter 12, Jesus talks to them about Psalm 110. How is it that David can call the Christ his son? Because he, he quotes Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And what is Jesus doing? Because the Jewish leaders knew that Christ, the anointed one, is the son of God, not God, but the Son of God, because that's what he's called in the Old Testament. You are my son. Today I've begotten you. Every king from Solomon on that was a Davidic king was the Son of God by adoption. But Jesus is challenging them from the psalm. How can David call his son my Lord? Fathers don't do that. You're my master. No, there's only one way. And Jesus is trying to get them to see that. Uh, cryptically, because they're, they're not open to him. But cryptically, that he is more than the adopted son of God. He is, in fact, the second person of the triune God, the son of God. Where do I have this authority? Hey, buddy, I'm God. And yet it's this God who said, you know, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom for many. And you read on in chapter 12, 
and he talks about the scribes. And what does he say? Well, they're the kind of people who like to wear long robes and walk in the marketplace to respectful greetings and sit at the chief seats in the synagogue and sit at the honor position at banquets and they rob little houses. So the Son of God gives his life as a ransom for many. The leaders of the temple that's going to be destroyed, they just want men's praise. They could care less about anything. So Jesus said, they, they got their reward. There's no more to get. And then there's a story about a widow at the end of chapter 12. Jesus is watching. And he watches all these people throw in their money into the, into the trumpet coin collection. And she throws in two copper coins, amounting to one penny. And he calls his disciples and says, they give out of their excess. She gives out of her livelihood. Over here, the Son of God, the divine Son of God, lays down his life as a ransom for many. In the middle, you have the religious leaders who are called to take care of the widows and orphans, robbing widows' houses. Yeah. And then over here, you have a widow whose house has been robbed. She hasn't much left. But she gives it. It's her living. In other words, she gives all to follow Jesus. I'm going to take just a couple of minutes. Turn, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 4. We could go to many texts, but I'm just going to go to one. On this subject, then I have one more subject I'm going to go to, and then we're going to quit. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is, is at hand. Therefore, <clears throat> be sound in judgment and sober, and, sober, and uh, for the purpose of prayer. Notice. Sound judgment, sober, the end's at hand. What do you need to do? Pray. Pray what? Well, first, you've got to believe God. Oh, he is going to destroy the temple. Then you pray. Okay, Lord, things are going to get really bad. Help me. Help me stand fast. That ties chapter 11 and chapter 13 together. Be on the alert. One more. Now turn, if you would, to 1 John chapter 5. <clears throat> there are a lot of verses like this. I just want to read this. Verse 14. And this is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, not, not hears in the sense he knows what we're saying, he always knows what we're saying. 
That is, if he hears and agrees with us, if it's his will. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, parenthetically, according to his will, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. Believe God. And if you say to this mountain, be cast into the sea, and you believe in your heart, it will be done. Why? Because Jesus said it's going to be done. So what, how should we pray? Jesus is teaching us how to pray. On one end, have confidence. Pray according to my will. Remember, in John, he says, Hitherto you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and my Father in heaven will give it to you. And we pray in the name of Jesus, which means we pray according to his will. Lots of stuff we pray, we have no idea if it's according to his will. Right? He didn't tell us. Now, there may be some people who have special insight who know this is the will of God. I say, maybe. Certainly there was that gift floating around in the New Testament days. Whether it's out there today or not, I can't tell you. But there is one way we can pray that's according to his will. And i got to tell you, we don't do it very often. And that is you pick up your Bible and you look at how Paul prayed. And now you know you're praying according to God's will. Take Ephesians chapter 1, or Ephesians chapter 3, or Colossians chapter 1. There are myriads of them. And this is God's will. Open their eyes. This is Paul's prayer. Open their eyes that they can have spiritual insight to know what is the hope of his calling. If we could fathom the hope of God's calling, and let me just quickly say, that's not heaven. If we could fathom the hope of God's calling, oh, we sing the song, everything would be diminished in our eyes compared to that. Do we pray that for our kids? Lord, open their eyes so they can understand the hope of your calling. Or the inheritance that God has in the saints. Or finally, the most extended part of the prayer, that we might know the power that is the mighty working of God by which he raised Jesus from the dead and raised him up to the highest height and gave him a name that's above every name and he's over all authority and power. Do we know that power? See, if we knew that power, our lives would be different. Wouldn't it? If we had that kind of power, would we wrestle so much with habitual sin? We are missing the power. And yet, this is what God's Word says it will do. So at the end of the, 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 the teaching about the destruction of the temple, Jesus says, believe God. That's how you know how to pray. What does God say? Don't pray this. God, you promised. You said you'd give me the Spirit and I would be victorious. God, help me. Show me the power. Well, now, here's where I'll stop. So in the Old Testament, you went up to the temple. 
and you didn't get to go into the house. You did your sacrificing at the door of the courtyard, and it's all burned up, and it goes up to God, but you don't go up. It's just a picture of you going up. And when the priest goes into the holy room and he puts incense on the altar of incense, it represents the prayers of the saints. You don't get to go in there, and it, it's just a symbol. It's not really your prayers. It's a symbol of your prayer. That temple has been done away with once and for all and forever. Either If it hasn't been, Christ has not died and risen. But over here, Jesus says, okay, you destroy this temple, and in three days, It'll be raised up. And what is the message of the New Testament? That temple is Jesus with his people. Ephesians, Peter, Timothy, Corinthians, everywhere. And so what do we have they didn't have? Well, we gather, here's the temple. And who lives in the temple? Jesus does by the Spirit. And we gather together, and we are in a picture right up in the throne room, next to the throne of grace, where we get grace and mercy to help in time of need. And what do we need to do? Believe God and say, oh, God, I need help. See, the psalmist says, you violently pushed me back, but Yahweh helped me. All the nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I'll cut them off. Yahweh's at my right hand. Yahweh's right hand does valiantly. Palm Sunday is a picture that takes a whole week to fill out. It's really not much of a triumphal entry. It's a rejection. The triumph comes in the end. He's put in the grave, and he comes up out of the grave, and he ascends to heaven, and he says to you and me, Believe God. Now, you want your prayers answered? Pray what you know is God's will. Let's stand together. Father, we thank you for King Jesus. He really did ride into Jerusalem, his city, and he really did go into the house which was his house, the son of David. And he really did stop the worship because it was going to be destroyed some 40 years later. And they really did kill him and stick him in the ground. And what he said came true. Destroy this temple in three days. I will rebuild it. And we thank you that Jesus, the temple, is our temple. And that we can come right to him at any time as individuals draw near to the throne of grace. And we thank you that Lord's Day by Lord's Day, we can draw near as a congregation when we have a more robust picture of what the temple is. All God's people, all God's wonderful people that he's chosen and died for and promised to strengthen, all gathered around one central person. Jesus Christ. Bless us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.